This podcast is for investment professionals only. Welcome. No investor can afford to ignore emerging markets. These economies have young populations who are becoming wealthier and spending and investing more of their own money. Emerging markets are where the lion's share of global growth is going to come from. But investing in EM is not simple. While the world is obsessing about the latest twists and turns in US-China trade relations, unpredictability and volatility is business as usual in emerging markets. So how does an investor capture the huge potential of emerging markets but navigate all that complexity and risk. Well, I'm joined in the studio by an expert on the topic, portfolio manager Nick Price, who first established Fidelis's EM equity capability in 2005 with an emerging Europe, Middle East and Africa strategy. He's now marking a decade at the helm of Fidelis's flagship Emerging Market Equities Fund. Nick, welcome. Thank you. Now, first of all, what sparked your interest in investing? How did you come into this uh, industry? My interest in investing started at a, at a very young age. My, my grandfather was... Um, he was quite an austere man, but someone who had his own equity portfolio, used to page through the newspaper and jot down prices. And he transferred that onto my father, and, and, and I naturally sort of picked it up from, from both of them. At your father and grandfather's knees. Yes. What, what sort of interactions did you have with him? Um, he, he was, um, you know, I guess he grew up in a very different generation. Uh, and he, he worked for the predecessor of British Airways. Travel was always a great love of his, and so, for example, on Sunday uh, Sunday afternoons, I would uh, I, he would set me geography tests, <laughs> uh, you know, and, th- and that morphed further into investing and 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 some of the companies that he invested in. So early lessons, and you started investing yourself quite early, but perhaps not with immediate success. Tell me about that. No, absolutely. I um, growing up in South Africa, it was very uh, gold dominated stock exchange at the time. And I got quite interested in technical analysis, which is looking at chart patterns to determine future t- price action, and invested in a what was then a marginal gold miner. Marginal gold miners are high-cost gold miners, a company called Grootvlei, with no real understanding of the fundamentals of the business, purely looking at the charts. Uh, and that was the first, I guess, expensive lesson I learned. And what was that lesson, if you could boil it down? <laughs> well, the, the lesson was that I was looking very simplistically at the chart p- pattern and, and, and thinking that this might determine the future price movements with no real understanding that this was a very high-cost gold mine and not understanding the nature of the business, which is obviously fundamental to fundamental analysis that we do. Absolutely. So that's what you ended up doing, but not straight away, because um, despite the interest in investing, you became an accountant. Yes. Yeah. I started off at university uh, on the law route uh, in South Africa, and halfway through that course, that Bachelor of Commerce course, worked out that I far preferred the sort of mathematical side of things and made the switch, made the switch to accounting and actually always enjoyed it. Um, I enjoyed the, enjoyed the commercial side of accounting, not necessarily the bookkeeping side of accounting, but it opens up you know, a, a huge array of opportunities. And for me, obviously, uh, it worked out very well. After a, a while, you, as an accountant, you left home, you left yep. South Africa and moved to London. Uh, what happened then? So I, um, I, I left South Africa to travel. Uh, I mean, it's a fairly remote uh, place. And uh, so came over to the UK to earn some money and travel. And that's indeed exactly what I did. After a while, I was then looking for something more permanent. I was, I was contracting in, in the city of London. 
uh, and wanted to go into the investing route. And so actually... Remembering these early lessons. Well, remembering these early lessons and, and at this stage, I guess, having a little bit more understanding of fundamental drivers. Um, so I applied to a number of uh, companies in London and indeed in South Africa. And uh, fortunately for me, Fidelity um, took the bait. You, you, you say you applied to a number. How big was that number? So this is um, sort of pre-internet days. And there, there was a handbook of investment companies in London and I basically went through this book and wrote off to I don't know if it was a hundred companies but certainly well north of 60 that uh, that I ended up drafting letters to all handwritten yeah. um, <laughs> and um, so you, you moved to um, Fidelity and um, what was that like what hurdles did you have to clear to uh, to join the staff here well, Fidelity has uh, quite a famous uh, interview process called the P-test process, um, which involves getting presented with a stock and having to analyze that stock uh, to, uh, I guess at that stage, a bunch of the senior fund managers and actually indeed the CIO at the time. Um, so that was the process that we went through and indeed a number of other interviews. It sounds terrifying. It was at that stage, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but now you are a portfolio manager. So after 20 years and looking back at that time, um, what do you most enjoy about the job? The fantastic thing about the job is I think there's a, there's, there's a huge amount of honesty in the job and it's very objectively measured in that um, you, you invest in companies and then the market is the ultimate marker of the success of that investment. So it's not like um, I'm particularly having a boss saying, well, I think Nick's done a lot of hard work here. He's done a good job. It's really, it's, it's a pretty objective basis. And I think that continual, um, that continual sort of cycle of investing and the market effectively judging It's immediate that decision, validation. It's validation, absolutely. And I think that is for me, something that I find incredibly rewarding. Yeah. Uh, rewarding when it goes well. What's the most difficult thing about being uh, a PM? Well, it's, it's when it doesn't go well. <laughs> and that's, uh, you know, the, there are two cases and points. So you, you have a portfolio or indeed you have a stock that's not going well. It can either be the market is wrong or you are wrong in, in simplistic terms. Generally, you have your set of beliefs about the company and its direction and its valuation. And in many cases, you have to stand behind that, despite the market continually telling you day after day after day, Nick, you're in the sort of dunce's corner there, you, you, you've got this wrong. And, and so that's very difficult psychologically to deal with. And then occasionally, you, you know, you also have to look at this and say, I'm just, I just didn't understand the risks associated with this company. So you have to be flexible. It's a weird combination, isn't it, of being resolute, and yep. yet at some point you're going to have to be flexible. Um, how do you balance that, or how do you? Is it a level of maturity? You're absolutely right. It's this this incredible mix of of flexibility and 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 being resolute. And you can't be dogmatic. You have to be incredibly open-minded and always acknowledge and accept that it's quite easy for you to be on the wrong side of things, um, and that your analysis is wrong. And, and indeed, even when you have your strongestly held positions, that has to keep coursing through the investment thesis, just a, a real open-minded accepted, acceptedness. How do you pick yourself up when you have got things wrong in the past? Um, look, you've got to stay true to the processes. I mean, this is, this is a game where you can't control a lot of the outcomes. 
So you're, you're investing, uh, you know, obviously with huge amount of factors that can come from left field and influence any particular investment, macroeconomic factors, oil price, political, geopolitical factors. And so what you have to do is remain incredibly true to the process. Your process. To your, to your individual process and, and take some solace from the fact that, you know, investing at a, in its most simplistic form, investing, you invest in a, in a current account, uh, it's risk-free, it gives you 3-4% back in, back in the old days. And to try and bring your equities down to the most simplistic return and, and risk functions. And if you keep thinking, thinking of them in that sort of manner, ultimately you win out. And it's a structure that um, you can then hold on to when you're being told one thing by the markets, but you, you still believe in your thesis. Absolutely. So, you know, you, 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 might, you might buy a company, you think it looks very attractive on, let's take it very simplistically, 10 times earnings. The stock or the company derates to five times earnings. And at that point, you, you're really being tested. You've seen a 40, 50% fall in the share price. It's now 40 or 50% more attractive uh, and, you know, the, the questions you're being asked are, should I put more money into the stock? What, are, what do I not understand? Or bail out. Or bail out, exactly. Or have I got this completely wrong? I just didn't understand. And, and, and that's, that, that's the thought process. And you have to keep coming back to, well, when I started out looking at this company, I thought we could earn, let's say, a 20% return on this business. It's now even more attractive. Uh, and, and just stay true to that thought process. How do, you, how do you balance that? How do you, uh, I know you cycle to work. I presume you cycle home as well. Um, <laughs> is that, uh, is that a, a way of sort of um, clearing your mind at the end of the day? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, um, the, the job has its stresses and cycling, I think, is a great stress reliever. I also do quite a lot of running and, uh, you know, various sports. I play tennis once a week. So all of that's very good for just taking your mind off off uh, the immediacy of work. Sure. Yeah. Okay. In your career so far, you've um, you've seen three major financial crises. Yep. Um, what have you learned from from them? So I started in 1998 in January 98. Great timing. Which was yeah, absolutely. Um, which was the Russian and Asian crisis. It was LTCM. Uh, so this is dating me somewhat. My biggest lesson from that particular crisis was actually the amazing opportunity that presented itself, uh, particularly in Russian stocks. So the Russian market thereafter, and I forget the exact time span, but it went up sevenfold. And effectively, there were companies that were being, being given away. And, and it's just a reminder in the midst of the gloom that there is amazing opportunities that get thrown up in these crises, and you have to be able to take advantage so that was that particular crisis. Um, the, the next major one was the technology bubble in 2001. I was the telcos and actually technology analyst at the time. You've got, I've got a great a of, ability, a to, great ability a... to pick them. I'm, I'm, I'm not looking forward to the next one. Um, and and there, to, to be fair, I thought this was quite, uh, quite visible. Um, we were absolutely very much on the right side of, of understanding the problems. And, and one of, the, one of the, the lessons that I took from this was there was a very, very hot IPO market. So new money's going into stocks. Um, and you'd have, at this time, a lot of companies connecting up fiber optics um, for broadband. So this was, you know, 2001, connecting up fiber optics for broadband. And they would raise $7 billion, $5 billion, 
and put in these city rings and these longer distance rings. And those business plans were completely flawed. They were absolutely Could you see that at the time? And you could see that at the time. There was just very little way that you could see that a $7 billion investment in fiber rings across a number of European cities was going to have any payback anytime soon, and they, and they didn't. Those investments then created those com- – those companies went out and laid fiber. They indeed laid fiber, and they put in routers you know, to, to manage the flow of the data – and um, that then inflated the sales of companies like Cisco, which is a big router company. And, and I think the lesson I take from all of that is that these things can create illusions in other areas of the marketplace. So it looked for, you know, for all intents and purposes that Cisco was growing its revenues 30, 40 percent at that period of time. They were selling their product to companies who had raised money with no real credible premise. And so people would look at that and say that's real sales, but actually they weren't. All built they on were air. All, all built on air. And so that was the, the, you know, the, the big takeaway that I took away from that. And, and was there an equivalent of a, a shoeshine boy giving you um, stock tips that made you think, hang on, this is, this is wrong? No, look, look, the TMT bubble was a bit like that. Everyone was invested in tech. There was a famous fund called the Net Net Fund, which disappeared uh, subsequently. So there was a huge amount of noise surrounding that but um look uh, when when i do shine my shoes it's usually by myself so <laughs> so there was no shoe shine a guy giving me tips there good and then just going back just over a, a decade um yep. there was the global financial crisis Absolutely. um so again uh, you know a, a pretty traumatic event for um anybody um, yep. who remembers it um what was that like managing money through that so that was um an amazing period of time um and and many many takeaways i think uh that was a period in time in which, for example, the Russian market used to close down 10%, the entire market, and then stop trading at midday because they Limit were down. worried about the concerns of it was just spiraling. It would open the next day, and the same thing happened, and the next day. It was really a remarkable time period. And I think that there were many, many takeaways. To be fair, I think Fidelity did a great job in understanding the risks of companies like Lehman's, Northern Rock, et cetera, in, in the global financial crisis. But specifically in emerging markets, and, and, and my experiences, the, the big lesson I took from that particular period was the impact of people using margin to invest in shares. And particularly, this is a Russian example, where a lot of the oligarchs in Russia had borrowed against their holdings of their big steel companies, et cetera, and then invested in other Russian shares. And you saw them, the banks, pulling back the margin and just creating this amazingly negative cycle to the point where valuations meant nothing. The banks were calling. They weren't interested in whether the stock was on one or two times price earnings. They were interested in uh, just getting their money back. And it created, again, another huge opportunity, but also is a great reminder that just how far removed a stock price can go from the fundamentals driven by factors like margin lending. So that, that for me, was my, my personal experience in the and, globe. And to step in at that stage, it must feel like you're the last man standing. If, if everyone else is, is running for the hills and you know, the banks are just after getting their, their money back, to, to say at that stage, no, I'm going to buy... 
you were the last man standing. I mean, there was there, there literally was. I mean, there was complete capitulation. Um, I, I think we had. We were fortunate again in fidelity. You had people like Anthony Bolton, who I think are very good at that. They're very contrarian, um, and it's it's the overall leadership in the company that helps you as well. You you see the behavioural attitudes of your you know your colleagues senior colleagues in the case of Anthony, uh, and, and that provides you some... Some comfort. Some comfort, exactly. Let's bring this forward to today then. Yep. Um, we've had a, a, a bit of a glorious bull run since then, yep. um, although if, at the time of us sitting down and recording this, um, US markets have reached a new all-time high, and lots of people are worried about how it's going to end. Um, how are you positioned in, in emerging markets around this, this sort of situation? So, look, I, I tend to have a pretty conservative portfolio through thick and thin, certainly from a balance sheet perspective. But we, we do live in a very, I think, unusual time. We are 10 years into a bull market, effectively, which, uh, you know, bottomed in March uh, 2009, and so, so which is extremely long. Uh, but we are also we're living with very unconventional monetary policies, central banks that are printing. Uh, we have, uh, you know, famously thirteen trillion dollars of global bonds that are yielding negative yields. So you paying, you know, you paying someone else to give them money, uh, which is a little bit strange. Um, and and so so that is the backdrop. And I think. The, the, the old rules just don't seem to matter anymore. It's a, it's, it's a very different situation. The old rules don't matter as, as long as one believes in the power of the central banks and their ability to keep this whole thing going. There, there is a huge pressure to drive returns from marketplaces where those returns are getting eaten away all the time through price appreciation. Um, you know, and when you have... $13 trillion of, of government bonds yielding negative yields, that ultimately pushes that money into another area. The rational person, I believe, has to go elsewhere and look for higher yields, and then they come into emerging markets. They might look at emerging market debt and feel, look, that's a little bit safer than equities, and in that process, they start compressing emerging market yields, and then that translates into equities as well. And is, is there a danger there? Because um, you, you've spent a career looking mm. at emerging markets. Um, when you see these new arrivals desperate for yield uh, yeah. in whatever way they can find it, do you worry for them? There's a huge issue here in uh, the suppression of interest rates, uh, returns, and, and what that means for people's risk appetites. And I think I, I put this, I think there two big drivers here. There, there's this huge requirement for income and return. And people want that obviously to be as safe as possible. If you think about a world today where we live, I get zero interest on my bank account effectively. 15, 20 years ago, you would have got five plus percent interest on, on your bank account. And so the problem is if we invest in a share, it loses 20%. It's a permanent loss today. It's permanently inked in. Your 100 pounds has become 80, and there's very little prospect of safely re retrieving that. 10, 15 years ago, you would have gone, made a bit of a mistake here. We'll put it in the bank for four or five years. I'll be back at a nominal of 100. I appreciate it doesn't have the same purchasing power, but I have at least feel psychologically better. Today, that's not available. So today, 
people are extremely risk averse as well uh, because they realize the permanence of the loss. So it's these two huge competing forces that I think monetary policy is driven, which is search for return as safe as possible, but also this huge risk aversion. And uh, um, it's it's kept going remarkably long. So that's the search sort of within the financial sphere. Mm. Um, but uh, if no man is an island, no share is either. And yep. <clears throat> these markets are operating in a world that is uh, full of um, things that might concern an investor. Um, as we talk, Trump has just met Kim. Uh, Iran has breached rules on its nuclear program. Protesters in Hong Kong have run rampage <laughs> through government buildings. There's a split developing between East and Western countries within the, the EU. Yep. How on earth do you as an investor balance um, th- these risks outside uh, the investment world? One of the key thought processes of the strategy is to invest in in great businesses and to invest in high return businesses. What that hopefully enables you to do over the medium term and does indeed, I believe, enable you to do over the medium term is is to drive returns through all of this macroeconomic volatility. Uh, If you've got a great business that, for example, can at the margin invest £100 and earn £20 on the back of that capex. That's an extremely powerful dynamic, particularly in a low interest rate world. You know, we're living in this world of extremely low interest rates, negative bonds, and then if you can find a company which can invest their $100, let's say, and create an annuity stream of 20, that's very, Sounds very powerful, good. and you need to and you need to be in it. So, so that is one key part of the strategy, is, is to find these high return businesses that really that can weather that can storm. can weather the currency moves can weather the price of oil moving etc cetera, etc cetera. but we do also pay a lot of attention to country risk as well you're not trying to make huge predictions about political outcomes etc but we do try and measure country risk in terms of their own balance sheets and income statements and indebtedness etc how sustainable an individual country can be yeah Coming back to the way that you invest, though, the companies that you're looking at, how have the companies that you were investing in a decade ago, what is different about the companies that you invest in now? If you go back to 2005, let's go back beyond a decade. Let, let's, uh, I mean, that was a period of obviously huge excitement about the growth in China. It was a period when people were worried about the world running out of resource. We still are. Uh, and, and potentially still are. I mean, open for debate. And, and so there was, at that stage, a lot of natural resource-type projects that we were invested in. And I look back at that and think possibly somewhat naively with the benefit of hindsight. It didn't hurt us in any shape or form, but, but, but possibly naively. The best opportunities that, that I see are, you know, you, you, look for, you look for big market sizes. So you look for big market opportunities and relatively low penetration, and a company that has clearly demonstrated that it can execute on its strategy over time. Let's take an example. Um, In India, the leading mortgage company is a company that we've been invested in for uh, five or six years. India is a country, obviously, with about 1.3 billion people. Average GDP per capita is under $3,000, so extremely poor country in aggregate. And mortgage penetration is under t- just under 10%. So what this creates is an enormous marketplace. And that marketplace pr- provides a long runway of growth. 
and provides the opportunity for scale. When you're looking at the prospects for improvement of economic growth over the long term, that's your, that's your point, that's the attraction. The, the, the attraction is that we can see that mortgage penetration can go up to 40%, 50%. So it can grow four or five-fold. It's highly likely that the Indian population is going to be 20 or 30% bigger in, let's say, 10 years' time. And wealthier. And wealthier. So, so those are all great attractions. And then you have a business which is by far the biggest player executing well. So they are able to amortize the costs associated with that business over a very big number of potential customers, which provides them the competitive advantage. It's all very well to take advantage of the opportunity I've described to you. You've, you've also got to do it in, in a way which obviously remunerates us as shareholders and, and, and sustainably and in this case, one of their key advantages is is the market share and their ability to amortize their costs over a big number of customers. It sounds like good management as well. Yeah. Um, what about the other great um, uh, emerging, or is it already emerged, um, uh, market, um, China? How has yeah. that changed in the years that you've been going there and investing in companies in China? It's changed so remarkably. I've got pictures dating back 15 years pictures of the Bund in Shanghai, which have just, the, the skyline has changed out of all recognition. And, you know, this, this is a market which is, has, I think, progressed incredibly far in terms of uplifting its people out of poverty. Um, so just probably one of the most remarkable periods of economic history that we've seen. Amazing embracement of technologies. Uh, you only have to go there and meet the number of players in driverless cars, uh, electric vehicle cars, to be truly blown away. I mean, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of companies that are all, you know, spending a lot of time and money at the cutting edge. At of the these cutting things. edge of these things, really at the cutting edge of these things. That's you know, that's just a reflection of a recent trip. And, and what about your engagement with those companies when you're talking to the the, the managers, the bosses, the people below them, the, the, their customers and so on? How have those conversations changed? A lot of the conversations were in Mandarin. And actually, that shift has probably been, I don't know, try and put a number on it, 30 or 40% now is Mandarin and, and, and the balance being, being in English. And we've got a great team of guys out in Shanghai, locals who can help interpret and talk to uh, you know, in, in, uh, improve the dialogue between us and, and management, um, but it's become, I think, a lot more financially focused. Uh, and of course, the internet in the last decade has changed everything in terms of information flows. Uh, the Chinese economy has really, I mean, is probably at the forefront of internet. Um, uh, you know, activity with the likes of Alibaba, Tencent, etc. So, um, huge amounts of change in terms of the dialogue, our access to information. Um, look, not everything in China is risk-free. There's a lot of debt in the economy, but uh, the change has been truly remarkable. So, looking back at um, you know your time so far, which companies have really resonated with you um, that uh, you you spotted them and that you really that really stand out uh, when, you, when you look back at all those years? One of the most successful has to be uh, our investment in NASPERS, which is, a, which is its largest holding is its position in Tencent. I've probably been invested in that for 
the better part of 14, 15 years. Whilst I wouldn't say I fully uh, had the foresight to understand just how big uh, WeChat, which is the messaging system that Tencent has in China. Uh, that would now become, seems to run everything. Which runs everything, which is literally is the, is the backbone of, of Chinese communication, if you like. Uh, and commerce. And commerce, absolutely. And social interaction and everything. We had some inkling that there was uh, that that this was a huge opportunity we we invested early and we and we've stayed invested for a very long time um, so that's been that was something where I think we understood the value of that investment pretty early um, and and it, it became bigger than than we expected but but the, the thought processes were right there Run with it. Um, and we've talked a lot about you and your thinking around investment. But what about people that you admire? Who do you draw from? You know, the usual answers, the stock answers are the Warren Buffetts, etc. Uh, and, and certainly I subscribe to all of that philosophy. The, 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 the one I think that uh, I probably have the closest affinity to is, is Joel, Joel Greenblatt, who wrote the little book that beats the market, which is really just... Reaffirming uh, investing in quality businesses, so high return businesses at reasonable valuations. And he actually dulled this down to a formula, formulaic approach. Uh, investing is a bit too complex for that. But, you know, I think that that thought process is, is um, absolutely fundamental to the way in which I, I think. Within Fidelity, I mean, Anthony Bolton certainly stands out in terms of his ability to be contrarian which, you know, I, I keep learning. <laughs> it's not an easy lesson. Um, and, uh, you know, I've, I've seen him at multiple times. I remember at the time of the Twin Towers crash and we had this sort of emergency meeting at Fidelity and Anthony stood up and said, well, I'm buying insurers and airlines. And, and maybe now, with the benefit of experience, it seems intuitive. At the time, it didn't. Um, so he's, he's probably the, uh, the person I, I, I most admire and seen in action. Well, both uh, Anthony and, and Joel Greenblatt managed to make it seem simple, as indeed have you. It's been fascinating um, uh, talking to you. Thank you ever so much, Nick Price. That's, that's a pleasure. And thanks to you for listening. If you want to learn more about Fidelity's Emerging Market Equities Fund, please go to our website where you'll also find a video where Nick explains more about his portfolio strategy and investment philosophy. And if you like this, please do rate us on your podcast app. That's it from me. Our producer was Charlie Humphreys. Goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.